0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. Whoa, that was loud. We're hot. Hey, uh, before we get started here, a quick uh, announcement um, something to kind of uh, put on your radar. Right over here, Darren and Jamie, could you guys raise your hands? That's Darren and Jamie Chase. They own Jam Coffee in uh, Phoenix. And this coming Friday at 6.30 um, at their coffee house, they're going to be hosting a music and message event. Matt Combe is going to be accompanied by uh, Austin Michael Bond and uh, performing. Uh, will be performing. And then Herb and Joyce Zick, who are missionaries to Italy, who are heavily involved. They're from a sister church, an A29 church in San Diego. Uh, they are working in Italy to pull out and rescue... Uh, those that are caught in human trafficking. And uh, they're bringing the gospel to bear in that place and rescuing those ladies that are a part of that. So they're going to be at the coffee house doing this concert. And uh, Darren and Jamie, if you have any questions, they'll be in the back afterwards, right by that table with the flowers. And if you have any questions you'd like to know more about that, uh, you can get those questions answered there. Go ahead and open up to John chapter 4 for our text tonight. Um, And let's pray one more time before we get started here. Father, as we come to your word, and as we think about and meditate on the things that your word tells us about the church, Lord, I pray that your truth would be so worked into our hearts That that it would be a part of the foundation of how we think about our identity, how we live, that it would change us. And if there's any place in our lives, Lord, where, where we are in argument with your word, if there is some incongruity in us, God, I pray that by your spirit, you would call us to repentance. That you would give us a softness of heart that is willing and ready and able to change. To stretch into all that you've called us to, God, that we might live the life you've given us to the fullest for your glory. So bless now this time as we study the scriptures. Use it for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are two weeks into this series, which is entitled Ecclesia. Uh, and, and essentially, we're asking the question how does the Bible describe the church? Now, the word ecclesia uh, is the Greek word that is translated church in the New Testament. And that's where our, our series gets its title. Uh, and so, we, we're taking the next few weeks to explore together the implication of all the ways or all the metaphors that that the Bible uses uh, to describe and to talk about the church. And there may be more, uh, but we've chosen six uh, for our purposes of study. And so last week, Sam uh, walked us through exploring what does the Bible mean when it says that the church is a body? What does it mean when the, the Bible says that the church is a body? This week, we're going to be talking about what it means when the Bible refers to us as a temple. As a temple. And in the following weeks, we're going to explore what it means when the Bible speaks of the church as a family, as a priesthood, as a kingdom, and as an army. So, as we dive in here, a quick question Where does God live? Where does God dwell? In our hearts. That's the good Sunday school answer. We know that one. We're like, Jesus, in our hearts. Those are the two, questions, two answers we know, right? Absolutely. And, and, and there's a sense in which you know, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere all at once. And so he's, he's always there. He's never not somewhere, right? And yet at the same time, the Bible also speaks of the abode of God. Uh, the, the, there, there is this idea that God has a home, if you will, a place that He calls home. It is the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it's a place where His will is being done presently. It is. It is the place that that when the, Jesus taught us as disciples to pray, He said. Pray like this, say, our Father, which is in heaven, let your will be done here on earth in the same way that it's being done in the place where you dwell, in in heaven, right? So it is a place where his will is being done, and the creatures that live in it are, are worshipful. They live in worshipful, loving surrender to him. They do not resist his will, And this is not out of fear of his authority, although his authority is very real, and it's worth being afraid of, right? But that's not what motivates them. He has that authority. Rather, it is because they love him, and they desire to give him the glory that is due unto his name. Those beings in heaven, the seraphim, the angels... The cherubim, the different creatures that we see displayed in the book of Revelation, mentioned in Ezekiel and in other places. They live in eternal, loving surrender and service to God. Now, at some point, obviously, they did have a choice, right? I mean, that's how we got Satan. That's how we got the fallen angels, the third that fell with him. But... But in that place, in his presence, his will is being done. Now, the guys with the Bible Project have put together a video that I think does a way better job of summarizing some of the things that I would want to communicate tonight and lays sort of a foundation. So we're going to take just a minute to look at this resource that they've provided for us. Let's watch it together.
1: And about how god is bringing them back together once again so let's go back to the beginning
2: where heaven and earth they're completely overlapping
1: yeah this is what uh, the bible's description of the garden of eden is all about it's a place where god and humanity dwelt together perfectly no separation and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing beautiful world and so on.
2: But as humans we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted <laughs> God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him.
1: Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction.
2: So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So
1: explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types
2: of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built
1: by Moses. And the other But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So
2: how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this?
1: Yeah, the the idea is this. to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So here we get
0: this understanding of the temple. And what's really happening in the Old Testament, when the, when the temple is being uh, so precisely pictured for us and spelled out, all of the, the furniture in the temple, all of the deco, uh, decorations of the temple are picturing for us something that God intends to do and a place where God intends to meet his people. So this, through this video, we can see that God's intention in the temple was always to create a space where the sins of man would not hinder them from the presence of God. It was a place where the fellowship of of Eden would be restored, and and God could once again be one with his people. Therefore, the tabernacle and the temple then were central in the life of followers of God, central to the Israelites. And as a matter of fact, when, when the story of Jesus unfolds, Jesus multiple times goes into the temple there. And he, he sees the things that are happening, he sees what's going on, and he even rebukes the, the things that are wrong in that place because it's such a valuable place. Remember, he, he th- throws out the, the money changers and overturns the tables and sets the animals free, and, and then he says, uh, my father's house was to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So he has a reverence, if you will, for this space, where God meets with man. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, you also see the apostles frequenting the temple in, in the first part of uh, the book of Acts before the temple is, uh, is destroyed. So this is an important place in the life of God's people. It was incredibly important for them. Now, the, the temple was never intended to be a social club. It was not a place to establish some sort of religious hierarchy uh, or, or to demonstrate your, your personal piety or how holy you were. But sadly, all throughout history, it, it became just that, right? Matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah, remember in Isaiah chapter 1, rebukes the people of Israel. He says, I, I am so tired of you trampling my courts in the temple. Why? Why? Because you're honoring me with your lips, you're coming, you're keeping the new moons, and the feasts, and the Sabbath, you're, you're, you're doing all of those things, sacrifices are being made. But he says, those things are putrid to me, because although you honor me with your lips, your heart is far from me. It, it was never place, it was supposed to be a place, it was a social club, it was never supposed to be a place of entertainment, You see, when you went to the temple, you weren't there to see the priest. You weren't there to see the sacrifice. You weren't there even to see the golden walls and the beautiful carvings and the incredible furniture. There was one main attraction in the temple, and that was the presence of God. All of those things were subservient. They were all pointing to the way in which God's people could once again be brought close to God. So it was not supposed to be a place of entertainment. It wasn't a place that you went to for a show or for some holy moment or to have some emotional experience. You went to be with God. Matter of fact, it's really interesting. I think about this all the time as it relates to the tithe. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the tithe, and this is parenthetically, this is a freebie, it's not in my notes. Uh, the tithe in the Old Testament, God said uh, to the people who were outside of Jerusalem, living in other parts of Israel, he said, hey, I know you can't come up every week and, and, and tithe, so what, this is what I want you to do. I want you to save up your tithe uh, for a year or two years, and then I want you to cash it in, convert it to, to money so that you're not bringing like 100 sheep and you know, 40 bushels of grain or whatever, right? Uh, convert it to money, bring it into uh, my house, right? And then buy whatever your soul desires, food or wine or strong drink, and then sit down in my presence and eat and drink with me and let your heart be merry unto the Lord. See, here's the idea. Giving to God, was about sharing in fellowship. It was about saying, Lord, you have blessed me. Look at what we've done together. My labor, your blessing. Look at what we share together. God, you're so good. I'm so glad to offer this to you. It wasn't paying a bill. It was worship. It was celebration. It was a place where you could go and sup with God. It was not to be a social club. It was not a place of entertainment. God himself was the main attraction. It was not a place of ease or comfort. As a matter of fact, there was nowhere to sit down in the temple. If you went to the temple, there was no, you know, there was no stools. There was no benches lining the walls so that people could have a place. You stood the whole time. It was not a place of ease or comfort. There was service to do. There was stuff to be done there, right? So, it wasn't, wasn't a place to go and be comfortable. In many ways, it made you very uncomfortable to be in that place. Matter of fact, if you were a worshiper and you, you brought your, your lamb as a sacrifice, uh, it, it kind of went like this you, you walk in, I got my little lamb here, okay? Tell God what you did. Put your hand on the lamb, okay? Put my hand on the lamb. Okay, God, I, you know, I yelled at my wife, and I said this thing, and I, there was that inappropriate joke at work, and then this happened, and I, that, that guy in traffic, I, I wanted to murder, and you know, you're know you going through the list of sins, right? While you're doing that, simultaneously, the priest reaches down with a knife and a bowl. He sticks the lamb in the jugular. The blood is being caught. The lamb is bleeding and bleating thrashing around, you're holding on to the lamb, confessing your sins, the blood is caught in this bowl, the priest takes some hyssop, right? He he takes some of the blood, he puts it on the horns of the altar, then he takes some of the blood and sprinkles it on you, so now you're covered in the blood of this This lamb. Then he takes the lamb, he butchers it out in a certain way, places some of the lamb on the altar as a burnt sacrifice while you stand there and watch this animal just be absolutely consumed by flames. You smell like overdone barbecue, you're covered in blood, and you walk out of that place slightly PTSD. It was not a place of comfort. It was not a place of comfort, it was not a place of entertainment, it was not a social club, it was not a place of religious tradition. It wasn't a place where you, you went to just sort of go through the motions of things that other people had done throughout the thousands of years of the knowledge of God. It was, you weren't carrying on something from a traditional perspective. There was, there was real things that were happening there. Spiritual things that were taking place. God Himself was drawing near to his people in that place. Sin was really being accounted for. Intercession was really happening and God was genuinely listening. Worship was raising up and there in that place in that sort of crossover of the two worlds as the people of God worshiped entering essentially into the throne room of God himself. Their praises join all the praises of the beings and the creatures who exist there in eternity. There are real things that are happening in that place. Sadly, though, in today's economy and in the current religious environment that we find ourselves in, there are many places where that is the perspective of the people who attend church. They think of it as a social club. This is where I go and make connections. My friends go there. They think of it a place, as a place to display their piety or climb some sort of religious hierarchy. They think of it as a, as a place where, where they can go and be entertained. And they, they walk away. And the conversations they have are filled with, with, with questions like, okay, so what, what, did, what did you think of the service today? Oh, it was, it was very nice today. I liked it. Uh, the, you know, the the music was what I prefer. Uh, the pastor told three funny jokes. I really enjoyed that. His sermon was quite clear. I really enjoyed it. Or. Yeah, you know, I'm just—I'm not a big fan of the worship and the kids program. I just wish they would do this differently. And boy, the—you know—what the coffee lady? She didn't even say hi to me. And you know, and then there was this thing that happened, and I just—I was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> hey, that's not what we're there for. We're not there because we're the center of the universe. We are there because God. Is the center of the universe. Some people think that it is, a, it is a place of ease and comfort. It's a place where I should just, I, I should go and hear positive things that just tell me, uh, that reinforce good feelings in me. No. It is a place where God argues with you. It is a place where he corrects his children Because he loves them. It is a place where you're brought to the recognition of your sin, where confession happens, where forgiveness takes place, where the hurting are healed, and those that are filled with sorrow are comforted. It's a bloodbath in a church, it's a messy place. It's a place where all kinds of things are happening and lives that are broken are being brought into the presence of God so that they can be loved and cared for and nurtured. It's not a place of ease or comfort. Matter of fact, there's not a place for anyone to sit down. There's enough work for everybody. And it's not a place of religious tradition. It's a place where real worship is ascending. It's a place where we really connect with God and we really minister to each other. Eternal things are happening when we gather. Eternal things are happening. And this, you see, is the crux of the debate for a woman that Jesus encountered in Samaria. So I had you open up to John chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a, a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, well, give me this water so that I might not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've you've actually had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, uh, I perceive that you are a a, a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This little interaction between Jesus and this woman is an incredible dialogue. You see, to understand sort of the mechanics of it, you you have to get a little bit of history. The the Samaritans were to the north of Judah. I have a map here that... uh, Maybe. Oh, there we go. You can see that in Judea, where Jerusalem was was at, down near the Dead Sea, uh, that's where the Jews historically were from. The northern part, though, in Samaria, was uh, a place that was inhabited by uh, the Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was a place where uh, they had settled. But when the Assyrians invaded... The Assyrians had this practice where they would take, to, to make you sort of lose your cultural identity, they would take pockets of people from each territory around them and transplant them as prisoners. They'd take them as prisoners to foreign countries and move them around so that you had this melding or this mixing of cultures, and people within a few generations would lose their sense of cultural identity, and they would just identify with their captors. That was kind of their, their strategy. It was, it was a melting pot. So Samaria, when it was conquered by the Assyrians, was was infiltrated with lots and lots of people. There were a ton of people who had come and settled there as a result of the Assyrian invasion. And the Israelites who lived there and had survived there began to intermarry with the people from those foreign countries. And along with that came the baggage of their gods. And they began to build altars to foreign gods and create high places and worship these foreign deities. And God rebukes them as a result of that. So there was tremendous tension between the compromisers to the north and the real Israelites, those faithful to the south. The Samaritans uh, worshiped these different idols. There was some additional a- animosity that was fostered by a-, a few other things. The Jews, after the return from their exile in Babylon, began rebuilding the temple. And the Samaritans vigorously attempted to halt the undertaking. Um, and, and we find that story in, his, in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The Samaritans also built a temple for themselves. M- matter of fact, prior even to just building the temple for themselves, there, w- there was... Um, uh, a, a ruler in the north who, uh, who, who decided, you know, I don't want to have this competition between where people will worship. And so uh, it, it's too far for people to travel to Judah and to, uh, to worship in Jerusalem, even though that, that's the prescribed place where they were supposed to worship. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish a second worship place. And so he, he made, believe it or not, golden calves, and he sent out word to all the people, and one in Bethel, and one in um, Dan. Thank you. Uh, one in Dan. Good job. That was great. <laughs> one in Dan, one in Bethel. And, and so these two golden calves uh, were, were alternate places where uh, the, the Israelites in Samaria could come and worship. And it was a great offense to God and to, to, the, uh, to those in Judea. And Samaria Samaria also became a place of refuge for all the the outlaws of Judea. And so whenever, you know, there was somebody who was trying to outrun the law, they would just run up to Samaria, and Samaria would give them refuge and and house them and hide them. And and so no, no justice could be done as a result of that. And the Samaritans also received only the five books of Moses. They rejected all the writings of the prophets and uh, all the Jewish traditions. And and for um, a mixture of all of those reasons, when the people from Judea thought about the Samaritans, they despised them. They didn't want anything to do with them. They were like half-breeds, and not full converts, and idol worshipers, and you know, uh, they treated them like Australia, just a place where you throw all your all your, your scoundrels and villains and, you know, all, all the reprobates of society. That's, a, that's what populated Australia to begin with. Uh, so that was the, the, the geographic Australia of Israel, right? And as a result of that, they, they just tried, matter of fact, they would try and avoid going through Samaria. Matter of fact, rabbis had this tradition that if they accidentally set foot in Samaria, they would they would take their their shoes off and they would clamp the dust off right and 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 try and get all the dust off them because they didn't want any of the dust of samaria coming back with them to judea huge amounts of animosity and so as jesus enters in he, he starts this dialogue with this woman she comes down to get water jesus is there he says hey would you would you give me something to drink she says uh why are you talking to me <laughs> You're you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't, we don't even talk to each other. There's this whole interaction where Jesus sort of reads her mail, so to speak. Says, "Oh yeah, it's true. You know, you haven't you 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 don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands. The guy you're with right now, you're not married to. So you're you know you're being honest about that." She's like, "Oh, you're a magic man. You're a prophet. You're like some kind of mind reader. Okay, all right. Well, I perceive that you're a prophet." Okay, prophet, I, I got a question for you. And, you know, she's opening up what is really a political debate of the time. What side do you land on? Democrat, Republican, oh, I'm mean, sorry. Do you, what side do you land on? Uh, is that the house of worship here or is it over in Judea in Jerusalem? Which one is it? You say it's your mountain, we say it's ours. Where shall we worship? And Jesus says, essentially you're asking the wrong question. It's not a where, it's a how. And it's, it's not a place that is the sanctuary of God, the place where he dwells. It's not a place, it's a people. The true worshipers They're they're not going to worship either in Gerizim, in the mountain that you think it is, or in Jerusalem where the temple is. It's not a place. It's a people. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not a place. It's a people. Now, this idea of the temple being a a people that God is assembling rather than a, than a specific location is reinforced in other places in scripture one of the main places is in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 if you can just take a moment flip on over there with me if you will Ephesians chapter 2 It's 11 through 22. I'm sorry, not 11 through 12. We're going to pick it up, though, in verse 19. Now, previous to this, let me give you a little context. He's saying, listen, you guys who were Gentiles, the church at Ephesus, you guys were outside of the covenant promises. You were outside of the people of God. You were not in God's presence at all. It wasn't even on your radar. But through Jesus, now he has brought you into the covenant people of God. And you are now a part of of all the promises that God has made. Now you're a part of this, this kingdom that God is building. And in verse 19, he says this. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. That was a way of saying, you know, foreigners outside of God's covenant people. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this passage teaches us us that through Jesus, God is making his people his habitation. Covenant people and people outside of the covenant are being gathered into one new person, if you will, one new dwelling place for God. They're being made into this new dwelling place for God's presence. And he's laid the foundation for this to happen. He he established the ability for this to take place through the work of the apostles, through the prophets, and through his son. All the ways in which God has revealed himself, right? The prophets, the apostles, and through the work of his son. His son being the chief cornerstone, of course. So then, The chief piece of his plan, having been accomplished through his son's work, it has always been God's plan... And, and, and it's being built up through the unfolding of history, through the work of God, through establishing Israel, through the work of the prophets, through the work of his son, and through the work now of the apostles, God has been building this house, which is a house of worship, a habitation for his presence, not in a place, but in people. It's the picture given to us, if you will, in Revelation. Remember, as the the new heavens and the new earth are being described in Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. It it says that the foundations of the new Jerusalem, you remember the garden city that's talked about from the video? The foundations of the new Jerusalem are are made with these precious gems, and on the gems are written, and these 12 foundations are, are written the names of the 12 apostles of God. And on the gates of the city and the walls that surround it are written the names of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying, listen, built upon this foundation and enclosed and protected by the work of the patriarchs and all that God did in the Old Testament, this city is now established. You see what's happening there? So then, why then does God use the picture of the temple in reference to the church. He, he gets so specific. He's like, okay, it's not, it's not a, a place. It's a people group that is the habitation for his presence. And, and, and then he says to them through the apostle Paul in Ephesians and in other places, uh, it's hinted at in the book of Acts. It's referenced again in 1 uh, Peter. He, he, he reinforces this idea that we're, we're being made into a temple. Why does he use that in reference to the body of Christ? Why does he use that in reference to the church? Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, it teaches us about God. And second of all, it teaches us about us. Those are the two categories of, of things that we need to understand in, in walking away from this tonight. So l- let's look at the first category. It teaches us about God. How? Well, first of all, it illustrates God's presence. It illustrates God's presence. Secondly, it illustrates God's plan. And then thirdly, it illustrates God's promise. So God's presence. The temple was a place where God's presence dwelt. And God is now present among his people through the church. You see, what what made the tabernacle or the temple special was was not the stones that enclosed it. If you went to the temple, you weren't there to see the rocks, were you? Who was the main attraction? God. Matter of fact, to this this day, if you think about it, um, people go to Israel, one of the, the major places To go in Israel is the Wailing Wall. Perhaps you've seen that, pictures of people at the Wailing Wall, and you'll see lots of slips of papers shoved into the crevices of the stones at the Wailing Wall. Why why do people do that? Because it is the closest place that you can get to, the holiest of holies. So they, they bring their prayers, they write them down on a piece of paper, they shove them in the cracks of the walls thinking, okay, I'm a little closer to God, maybe he'll hear me now. But you see, though the temple illustrated God's presence in the Old Testament, the church illustrates God's presence in the New. Now God demonstrates his presence, not through a place, but through a people. Now think about this with me for just a minute. In in 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's this really interesting story about Eli, the high priest. Eli uh, has two sons who are wicked, Hophni and Phineas. And uh, th- these two guys are are, are not uh, serving the Lord. They're they're uh, ripping people off and and um, you know botching the sacrifices, using pe- the sacrificial system to steal for themselves, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and, but, but they take then the Ark of the Covenant, the tangible piece of furniture that was called the mercy seat, the place where God's presence would dwell and meet with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. They take then the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into battle with the Philistines. In the process of the battle, they, they're treating it like a sort of like a lucky rabbit's foot or, or something along those lines. But in the process of the battle, they lose, and then they lose the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines actually capture the Ark of the Covenant. And they take it back with them. Uh, and, and when word comes back to Eli, Eli hears that his sons have both been killed in battle and that the Ark of God has been taken. And he's fat and he's old. And uh, so he falls over. And when he falls over, he breaks his neck and he dies right there. Well, one of his sons was married. And his wife was pregnant. And she was due at any moment. And when she heard that her husband was dead and that her father-in-law was dead and that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken from Israel, the tangible presence of God among his people had been taken from them, she went into labor and gave birth to a son. And you know what she named him? Ichabod. Ichabod. You know why? The Kabod was the tangible presence of God over the mercy seat. Was the weight of God's glory present with God's people? And she said, God's glory has departed. He is no longer present with his people. And she, she mourned that. Even more than the loss of her husband and her father in law. This is why it was such a big deal in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, or 2 Samuel chapter 8. Where? Hold on, let me look at my reference here. Uh, this is why it was such a big deal in. The story about Solomon. I don't have a reference, <laughs> and the story about Solomon, where uh, he builds the temple, right? And uh, as, as he builds the temple, uh, the, the final things come in into into place, and the Ark of the Covenant is brought. Into the temple, and and when all of a sudden the Ark of the Covenant is laid in the holiest of holies in the temple, the glory of God fills the temple so much so that the priest can't even do service there. It's just overwhelming the presence of God. A cloud fills up the temple. And people said, The presence of God, it's back. It was a big deal to have God present. In your nation. So then, why does God use this illustration about the temple? It teaches us, it illustrates to us God's presence. Only His presence is not in a place any longer, it's in us. And His presence is not in a location, His presence is going out into the city of Medford. It's going out into Jacksonville and Phoenix and Gold Hill, even. Right? God is reaching out through his people. He's bringing his presence to the world. It's incredible. It illustrates God's plan as well. The temple demonstrated the great separation that had taken place place between God and his people. You see, those on the outside of the temple are separated from God's presence, especially if you were not one of God's people, if you were not a part of the covenant people of Israel. Their sin separated them. Sometimes their nationality separated them. And in order for them to be able to draw near to God, they they need to be born again into a new nation, a new kingdom. In order to to be close to God again, they have to get rid of their sin somehow. Somehow in order to to be close to God, they need to have somebody represent them to God because they're not holy enough to stand in his presence. They need a lamb to cleanse them a priest to represent them. And even if somehow they were able to make it through the, the, past the laver and past the altar and into the, the holy place, that first division within the temple, if they could make it in there, there was a veil that separated them from the very presence of God so that they would not die in that place. In order for them to go in, the veil would have to be ripped Couldn't be ripped by man. God would have to do it. He'd have to declare, there's an open house. You're welcome. Come on in. Come close to me. Not only that, but then who wants to leave? Wouldn't it be great if in the Father's house, he created mansions? Places for us to dwell in his presence for all of eternity? You see, God's got a plan to wash us, to cleanse us by the Lamb, to have a high priest who represents us, to rip open the veil and bring us into his house, and to make us permanent residents. You know who saw the presence of God? The stones. The stones saw the presence of God in the temple. So, it's teaching us something about who we are in God and who God is to us. He's drawing us in, He's got a plan to redeem us and to make us His own. It illustrates God's promise. He, er, Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, tells us that the temple and the tabernacle was representative of the realities of heaven. And the way that it was laid out was laid out like a map, if you will, of the heavenly place, the throne room of God. To this day, when people go to the holiest, or when they go to the, the wailing wall, they're trying to get as close to God's presence as they can. Even we as believers. And there's a part of us that's just longing, it's crying out, it's groaning, if you will. Longing for the day when sin and our sinful flesh is no longer there. Where our enemy is done away with. Where the world is redeemed. Where death is no longer a factor. And we can be in the tangible presence of God without dying. Where we can see our Savior Jesus on the throne. Where we can be filled to the fullest with the presence of God through the third person of God. Through the Holy Spirit. We're longing for that time. where, in fullness, no longer through a veil. where in fullness. We will enjoy all that God has guaranteed us through the promise of his son. So it illustrates God's promise. Listen, the temple and all its artwork that represented the garden of God points us to a future time when the garden is restored through the garden city of heaven. And now, through God's people, he is demonstrating his promises. We are living illustrations of what it means to be united with God, even if it's only through a veil right now. The way that we live is a tangible demonstration to the world around us. Secondly, our second category here is it teaches us about us. It illustrates our partnership. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 says that we are joined together. Joined together. Listen, it is our connection to each other that gives us stability and strength to stand and bear the weight of God's glory. You see, it's when the stones are stacked on top of each other that they become a habitation. It's when they are joined together and formed together that you see really the fullness of who God is. Because listen, I don't fully portray who God is. And neither does Stephanie. And neither does Kathy or Mitch or David or Aaron. We need each other. Through the working of the body and the fullness of the temple that is the habitation of God, we are learning the different dimensions. The different aspects, the facets of God's nature and character through our love for one another, through the way that we interact, through all the giftings that are brought to bear, it's in our joining together. So it teaches us about us. It illustrates our partnership. It illustrates our process. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you can check it out later. Verse 5 says this. It says that we are being built together as a temple. Here's what that means. We're being shaped right now. In order to declare something. The painstaking detail in each piece is being fit together to illustrate the full glory of who God is. In the Old Testament, First Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it talks about when Solomon was building the temple. And it says that, that all the stones were quarried outside of Jerusalem, far away from the city. And, and the reason for that was they, they fashioned it out there so that when the stones were brought in to build the temple, not the, the sound of a chisel was never heard in the city. It was to be quiet and reverent in the building of God's house. And guys, guess where we are? We're in the quarry. And God is chiseling away at us at this very moment. And he's forming and fashioning us. One stone grinding against another stone. And we're being shaped. So in that moment where we are fully brought together and placed in God's presence tangibly, the work is done. We're being shaped. It illustrates our process. It illustrates our permanence. When I went to Washington, D.C. with my son a few years ago, I, I, I was struck with the number of, huge stone buildings that are there and the etchings that are in the walls scripture and all the references to God. And I thought, man, this is incredible. And it, and it hit me, you know, and, and what brought this to life is I saw the constitution and the ink on the constitution is fading. So they have it protected right now so that it doesn't wash completely out. And here's, here's the reason why, because if the ink fades and some future generation gets to a place where they say, hey, let's get rid of all the copies. We no longer have the original. Let's reimagine what this might look like. Those things will will disappear, right? So the founding fathers and the people in our our government preserved it in stone so we'd never forget. This is why tearing down monuments and all this is such a big deal because we're we're wiping out pieces of history. and, And once you start to edit history... It can change what people think about it in the future. So here's what it's representing to us. God referring to us as the temple, it illustrates our permanence. Stones are used to make something last, something permanent. God's people are here to last. They're here to be a lasting voice for who God is. And then finally, it illustrates our purpose Listen, everything in the temple was aimed at pointing to God and revealing his glory. The temple space was designed to look and to feel like you were in another world. The laver, the altar, the showbread, the incense, the menorah, the carvings on the wall. it It was like you were stepping into another dimension to be in that place. And each of the pieces of furniture represented something. The labor represented cleansing and consecration. The altar represented the sacrifice and the cleansing of sin. The showbread represented God's provision for his people. The the altar of incense represented the, the prayers of the saints and intercession going up. The menorah represented the light of God reaching out into the world, the glory of who he is. And we take on those things. As the temple of God, we're examples of what it means to be consecrated and cleansed. We're examples of what it means to have the blood of the Lamb take away our sin. We are living examples of what a gracious provider God is. We are examples of living intercession as we care about the world and we represent the world to God and God to the world. We are examples of those who have been illuminated by the light of God's glory. You know, if you went in the temple at night, the stones were not the source of the light, but the stones bore the glory of the light. So here's our conclusion. God uses the temple to talk about the church because we, the church, are where God has chosen to meet the world. He did it through his son. And now he does it through us. Through our being fitted together, through our life in worship, through our love for one another, through our reverence for him, through our care for our neighbors. Through the way that we integrate our lives and stick together and love each other. The world is getting a sample of redemption and eternity. We are a fragrance of God to the world that is perishing. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Now work it down into our hearts. Change our perception of who we are in you. Let your truth wash over us. Let it be like a seed that takes over. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.